The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. One in ten Americans has a family member with Alzheimer's, and one in three knows someone with the disease. Too often people living with dementia are entertained instead of engaged. Research shows that artistic and imaginative activities reduce the need for psychotropic medications. Deborah Schaus, who's our guest today, interviewed dozens of experts who showed that creativity and imagination live on even when memory falters. Deborah offers care partners practical hands-on ideas for meaningful creative activities as they can do with their patients, family members, or friends who have dementia. She's featured in the Washington Post, Women's Day, and in more than four dozen Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Uh, her new book, which we will be discussing today, is called Connecting in the Land of Dementia. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Deborah. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm eager to talk to you. Yeah, well, there's so much to talk about as we kind of, we chatted a little bit before the show, but... Uh, Connect, you know, the title of your book, you know, Connecting in the Land of Dementia. Most people, unfortunately, I think family, friends that I know, and even people professionally, don't think of the word connecting and dementia at the same time because there seems to be this sort of feeling that, well, once someone suffers from dementia and things get worse, it's very difficult to connect. And I guess in your book you're saying when, even when we try, we're not really doing it in the right way. So One of the, one of the joys yeah. of writing this book, Catherine, and getting to talk to dozens of people worldwide on the subject of staying connected throughout the dementia journey is that there are so many options and ideas for care partners, both family, professional, friends, who want to stay connected. And the options are beneficial for both parties. So as you said in your introduction, the research is showing that even when we can't communicate in the same way, our cognitive functionings are somewhat impaired, our creativity and imagination are still blooming. And in fact, sometimes, because people with living with dementia have less filters, their creativity is heightened. And so that's what this book is all about, a variety of activities through Cooking, gardening, arts, music, movement, technology, poetry, storytelling that people can use to deepen their connections and continue their relationships with the people they are caring for. And so it gives that sense of hope and meaning to all of us who are involved in this journey. And when you're talking about all of us, Deborah, I mean, this is really, these statistics, and I, I don't know if they're getting worse, maybe they are with the aging population, probably I would assume they are with the baby boomers, one in ten, when you're talking about these people, one in ten Americans has a family member with Alzheimer's, 
and one in three know someone with the disease. So we are really surrounded by this disease. And with, uh, as I said, with the aging population, it really does behoove us to have an understanding, like you're talking about in your book, so that we can make that connection. So how do we, I mean, you, you listed the categories. I know you've done a lot of research. You've talked with a lot of people, uh, leaders in the field of dementia. So how do you specifically connect on the, with creatively rather and engage creatively? Um, how do we well, actually do that? Yeah. That is, that is a really good question. And of course, every person is different. So sometimes it takes some exploration. But an overview is for one thing to go to the person with an appreciation of where they are. I know for me, my mom was living with dementia, and when I gave up trying to bring her back as the the mother she used to be and um, bring her into my reality, and I decided to go where she was and meet her there, our relationship really blossomed. And so that is something I really learned, and that is to to go to the person to not be correcting them when they feel confused or can't come up with the right word, but to ask open-ended questions and bring out conversation instead of stifling that. And that, again, invites out the creativity. Also, to offer options other than our traditional ways of communicating. Um, My mom and I used to sit around and talk a lot and we would see each other. Well, at some point... We couldn't really do that as well. So we had to explore different ways to communicate. Singing was a great thing that we used together. And there's, in fact, been a recent study by Dr. Teppo Sarkamo out of Finland that says using singing in everyday life um, really soothes both partners, gives them a beneficial leisure activity to do together, and it boosts your energy and spirits. And there's very good news for those of us who can't necessarily carry a tune or don't always remember the words. Tipa Snow, who is a renowned uh, dementia educator, says that humming is a wonderful way to bring people into the music. It invites them in, and it also deepens your breathing. So, Catherine, what I was trying for in this book, and my experts really helped me, was easy things that any of us can do that don't take a lot of time and preparation because one thing that happens, whether you're a full-time care partner or you're a family member who's visiting sometimes, you often feel really exhausted and stressed, and you think, I can't stand to do one other thing. But um, what... What I've learned and heard echoed by the people I've talked to is um, these expressive arts activities are not one other thing. They are a vital thing, as vital as eating and getting dressed. And as uh, Mara Bartanis said, the author of When Caring Takes Courage, she said, I learned to laugh instead of doing the laundry, that laughter was as important as laundry. And so I want that to pick is up, another- I want to- I just want to pick up on one of the things you said because you're talking about music, and music is a great way to communicate. Oh, yeah. Um, even through and humming and meditation. But also, would you say that it's important to, you, like you, w- with your mother, obviously, uh, want to, you know, you, that first sort of, I guess, impulse is wanting to 
get mom back to the way she was or whoever the loved one is, and, and you really can't do that. You have to do, you have to communicate in a different way. But wouldn't you take, let's say if you take the skill, uh, whether it may be music, it could be writing, whatever the, maybe the creative, the creative piece that each individual has and, and communicate and sort of work on that one. I mean, music may be for one person, uh, theater may be acting, uh, maybe for somebody else. I mean, there are different ways, uh, storytelling, you, poetry, all of those things that you mentioned, but sort of make it connected to the individual that you are trying, that you are communicating with. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I do. And I think you've brought up a very important point um, you always want to honor the individual and help them continue their passions and hobbies, even as you adapt them. So, um, as you mentioned, Catherine, if somebody has loved music all their life and has played the piano, then you want to help them continue that in whatever form they can. If someone has adored gardening, um, and but they no longer have the stamina to go outside and really get, you know, into the garden, um, ask yourself, what is most important about gardening to my father? Is it getting his hands in the dirt? Is it putting the seeds in the ground, watering, harvesting, having something to share with people? And once you figure out what that is, you can adapt the activity, bring it indoors if you need to, so he can still enjoy his activity. There's a second part to this most important thing you've just brought up, um, Catherine, about helping people adapt their activities. And the second part is people can learn new activities, and that's what's so much fun. You don't have to have an interest in art or music or gardening to get involved in it when you're living with dementia. It could be something you haven't had a chance to explore. And so there are wonderful programs, art programs, for people who are living with dementia. Many Alzheimer's associations have Memories in the Making, which is a watercolor uh, painting program. There's a wonderful book by Berna Hubner called I Think Better When I Paint, and it's the story of her mom, who was an artist, who sort of, um, quote, disappeared into dementia, didn't want to paint. Berna figured out a way to coax her out. And her mom said, after she started painting again, that great line, I think better when I paint. A lot of people feel that way. And some of those people have never, ever picked up a paintbrush. So I love the topic you've brought up because there's a great sense of discovery in it. What was the most difficult thing for you or the most frustrating in the beginning? Because, I mean, everything you talk about, these are great ideas that obviously uh, they work uh, and they, they enhance the relationship. But like in the beginning, I think that oftentimes people just get so frustrated and it, they kind of, it's difficult for them to, to see the big picture or to even to start to do the things that you talk about in the book. So I guess that's two questions. What was the most difficult thing for you? Like how difficult was you for you to be able to start to connect to your mother in the ways that we've been talking about? That is a great question. And I think um, many of your listeners may identify with me when I say I went through a period of grief, confusion, worry, anxiety. I was so sad about what was happening to my mom. 
I was very forgetful during that period. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, my God, it's happening to me. And that uh-huh. exacerbated things. And so one of the things, and I, and I do think there is a grieving period in this because things are changing. For me, one of the things that really helped me because I was a writer was journaling. And I started journaling, and I started just writing down what happened with me and my mom and dad, just recording it. And eventually, I turned those into essays, and that was the beginning of my first book on this subject, Love in the Land of Dementia. It's the story of my journey with my mom and dad looking for the gifts and blessings in what was happening to us. So I really appreciate you mentioning there are, and even along the way, there are periods of confusion. Um, To me, this is a very creative endeavor, being a care partner, requires a lot of flexibility and humor. I mean, sometimes you plan a great activity. This happened with me and my mom, and my mom is staring out the window, and she doesn't want to talk to me. And so at some point, I learn she's staring out the window. Maybe she wants to go outside. And so I take her outside instead of feeling disappointed. I had my moment of disappointment, but getting quickly over my moment of disappointment that we're not going to do this great thing I had planned for us. So I do. So you take her where she is. It's where she is, not where you are, but where she is. That is correct. That is a big thing that I learned and I continued to learn all the way along the path. What happens when you, because you're mentioning your father and in families, there's not necessarily one caregiver, there may be two or three, and they don't always agree. I mean, you know, you have this great plan for how you're going to be able to connect, in your case with your mom, but uh, let's say her spouse or another sibling doesn't feel that way, because you you have to manage everybody who's doing the caregiving as well. It's not just you and, and, uh, and the person who has Alzheimer's. That's true, and I know that's challenging for a lot of families. Really good a piece of advice from Dr. John Zeisel, who I interviewed for the book, was that when someone is diagnosed with dementia, if you can, get together as a group of family and friends and talk to that person about how you can support them. What are the things that are most meaningful in their daily r- routines? How can you help them um, continue those? What are each of you willing to do to help? And I think that if you can do that, that really helps soothe things because it is complicated. Often there's one person near the person living with dementia. Other people are far away. They want desperately to contribute, many of them. It's hard to feel like you're a part of it. And so I think it's really important. One family I talked to got together every year and just like brainstormed about their mom and where she was and how they could continue to help her. I think there's lots of different ways to do it. And one of the things I love about these different activities is they are equalizers. So there's something when there's... um, Tense times are like for the holidays coming up when you feel like your holiday is going to be different, you're going to be grieving, to pick something new to do together as a family that you can all participate in. Yeah, that's, I think that's an excellent idea because I think it's very 
as you talked about, you go through a grieving process and people are sometimes different family members are at a different place with the grieving process. But always trying to, I think that sometimes it's, it's really difficult. You want to get back, as you, I think you mentioned at the beginning of the, of the show, get back to the way it was and you really have to let go of that. You're not it's always going forward with something new and doing it in a different way, I guess is what you're saying. Um, what about, let's take some of the specifics, because there are lots of ways of being creative. You mentioned in the book music, for one, obviously. Um, cooking. Um, how, let's take cooking. How, you know, if someone has dementia, uh, aren't you afraid they're going to hurt themselves or they're not going to be able to use the stove or to you know, use, use well, the knife just, or just, yeah. You brought up a great point, and this is why these are activities to do together. So you want to keep people safe, and yet you want them to be engaged. And one of the things that often happens when you're living with a diagnosis of dementia is you lose your sense of meaning and purpose, and you don't have a chance to give back, like so many of us have a yearning to do. Cooking is a way to do that. When you have an opportunity to help make a meal with someone and for someone, it gives you a real feeling of satisfaction. And so that's a way you can um, get engaged in the kitchen. It's a time that food can trigger memories or conversation. And there's lots of things you can do. For example, with my mom, she could no longer bake her famous brownies and date crumbs for Thanksgiving. And... um, I went through a little period of grief over that. Then I asked my brother, who's a great cook, if he would do that, and he did. And Mom and I were sous chefs. So we sat together, and we got dull knives, and we chopped mushrooms, and we tore lettuce, and we put fruit in a bowl, and we folded napkins, and we helped prepare the meal. And so and it was a great to be working together like that and conversations came up and my dad sat there supervising and eating his traditional cashews and, you know, sharing stories of their early Thanksgivings. It was just this beautiful time together and sometimes when you're busy with your hands, you know, it's easier to talk. So that's one easy way to do things. Another is You know, the simple act of making sandwiches that you can do together, and you can serve people these sandwiches, or, you know, decorating, cooking, uh, making cookies. The idea is that you want, you know, good aromas. You want something, a food that is delicious to that person if possible, and you want something that will hopefully serve as a catalyst for conversation. So you create new memories. I mean, is what you're you're doing. It's um, in a very different way. But uh, let's. You also mentioned movies and technology. So how would you do that? Like movies. Yeah. Well, let's start with movies. How do you? Yeah. yeah. Well, movies. I uh, was very educated by a friend of mine who's living with dementia, and she said she got very frustrating. She and her husband like to watch movies, and after 15 minutes, she would have lost the plot. So finally, she thought, she asked her husband, will you stop the movie every 15 minutes, they were at home, tell me, remind me what's going on. And he did that, and they were able to get through the whole movie, enjoying it together. So it's simply adapting to that. You can also do short clips from YouTube. 
You can do some of the old sitcoms that people really enjoy, you know, bring a lot of humor into your life. And so, and there's even, you know, several places are doing dementia-friendly movie series out in the community. Our community here in Kansas City is starting one in November. I'm very excited about that. And, and part of it is having a chance to talk in intervals during the movie. So it's a social conversation, and then it weaves the movie back in. Um, so that's one thing about movies. And then technology... Yeah, go ahead. I want to just, yeah, because that brought up a question. You're talking about how to do this and, and, and watching them. That's a great I, practical idea. How do you, when you're doing this, make sure that you are keeping or ha- the, the, in, the person dignity and not infantilizing them? I mean, there's a fine line. Is there, I mean, does, it would seem to me that comes up. That's an issue. Like you, you're helping someone almost in certain ways, like you would help a young child or, um, and but you still want your loved one to maintain their dignity and not be infantilized. Is that possible? It's very possible, and you've really brought up an important point. Uh, we all we all want our dignity. We all want to feel like we're part of a team, and so I mean, part of it is when somebody might need assistance. Now, Vicky, my friend who is living with dementia was able to ask for the assistance she needed. But if you notice that somebody might is struggling and might need assistance, you can ask, uh, shall we have a little recap? Or um, tell me what you think so far. You know, and just have a conversation, a conversation where there's no right or wrong. You're just sharing impressions. And the idea is, and I love this concept. It's um, heard about it from both Dr. Al Powers, Power, who works in the field of dementia, is a pioneer there, and also Dr. Cameron Camp. They talk about cognitive ramps. And the idea is, if you had a person in a wheelchair, would you try to make them go up the stairs? No, you would look for a ramp. And so that's what we're doing when we're helping people who are living with cognitive impairment. We're looking for those ramps that will help them enjoy the things that enrich their lives. And when we think about it like that and think about what would we want, (laughs) you know, if we were in the same situation or we were struggling in any way, we would want that kind of support. And so to be alert for that and give it back but but ask about it. So yeah. I think you're you're right. It's, it it takes some thoughtfulness, but um, it's very possible to you know invite people to be part of an activity, asking for their help, noticing when people need help, offering to support them in some way, and it can really enrich your time together. Now let's talk about technology because most of the time we're talking, not all the time obviously, how technology is ruining us and it's hurting us and we, we're not <laughs> engaged with people because we, we're too engaged with our you know, cell phones or our iPads. Or, so, but you use this as an example of how we can engage in a, in a really good way with someone who has Alzheimer's, a, a loved one, and we can do it through technology. So how do we do it? Well, there's several ways. I had a beautiful example from Cameo Rogers, who works in a care facility. There was a woman who lived in her facility, and her 
older sister lived about 200 miles away, and they hadn't seen each other in years because they were both frail. And so they got their family members together to orchestrate a Skype session with them. It was the sisters were so delighted to be able to see each other, to be able to talk to each other, and that was the renewal of their lifelong friendship. So there's families using Skype and other, you know, ways, visual ways to see each other in many different ways to include somebody in a family gathering if they can't travel to um, include somebody in their grandchildren or great-grandchildren's life by just letting them watch the children play. And so there are so many ways you can connect with people who are living apart from you, and part of it is having the technical support that you need, picking a time of day that is good for the person who's living with dementia, good for everyone, and making sure it's not a stressful experience. So, you know, teaching people don't say, hey, remember when you were, you know, 49 years old, to just do those open-ended questions so you're not putting people on the spot, and to keep the interactions fairly short. And those can be hugely successful. Uh, Now, we have a few minutes. We have a few minutes left. So, I mean, Connecting in the Land of Dementia, Creative Activities to Explore Together. That's Deborah's book. Uh, but there are other ways to connect as well. And I know that you uh, have a blog, a weekly blog. So talk to us just a little bit about that. You write a column for the Kansas City Star. Uh, so I want listeners to be aware of that's another way to connect with you and the work that you're doing. The the blog is the best way to connect with this work on uh, staying connected, and it's dementiajourney.org. Every week I post either an inspiring story or some tips for care partners on creativity and connection. I also love to hear from people because what I learned is one of the most important things we can do is share our stories. I know all across the world people are doing creative things to stay connected, and the more we share these ideas, the more we all benefit. Yeah. You know, I never thought about that, but it's true. The whole world is open to you when you start with your blog, for instance. Has any idea come from anywhere that you were really surprised? Oh, my goodness, I never even thought about this. This is, like, so unique, so creative. Because I imagine that would happen, as you know, as, you know each week as you write the blog and people respond. Yes. Well, um, I mean, one idea from the book that I hadn't thought about was the idea of laughter yoga and introducing more laughter into your life. And I knew laughter was good for you, but I didn't know um, about Dr. Madan Kataria's research. He's the founder of Laughter Yoga from Mumbai, India. And when he researched laughter, he learned that real laughter and fake laughter have the same benefits. They boost our immune system, they raise our spirits. And so he offered a number of tips for families to just add in more laughter into their lives. Do we have a minute to share one of those tips? Yep, go ahead. Okay. So when I interviewed him, I was very prepared. I wanted him to know I was a serious journalist on a serious mission. And the first thing he said to me was, Deborah, do you know the ha-ha chorus? And I had to say, no, I don't. 
and he says, ha, 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 <laughs> and he sings the whole happy birthday song in the ha-has, and he was laughing, and I was laughing, and that's just how simple it can be to add that's great. in laughter. That, I, that is a that is a great story. I hate to interrupt you, but that's a great story because we have 30 seconds left, and that's a good way to end the show. Because, it is a good way. Uh, yeah, it is. It's great. Deborah Schaus is author of Connecting in the Land of Dementia, Creative Activities to Explore Together. You can buy it at Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for sharing all of this information with us today, Deborah. Um, really, really helpful for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Catherine. We are going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Alan Hamilton, M.D., uh, his new book is Lead With Your Heart, Lessons from a Life with Horses. Dr. Alan Hamilton is the reason that guys like Patrick Dempsey, we all know who Patrick Dempsey is, can act like surgeons and be believable. Uh, Dr. Hamilton has been the senior medical advisor for 200 episodes of Grey's Anatomy and recently uh, wrapped up some work including an on-camera stint as an operating surgeon in Mark Wahlberg's new movie about the Boston Marathon. Dr. Hamilton is also a respected horse trainer. That's his passion. Uh, sharing how his work with horses and neurosurgery can teach us lessons in leadership, trust, ambition, and humility and gratitude in his new book. Uh, Dr. Hamilton has served as a medical officer in Operation Desert Storm and is a decorated U.S. Army veteran and has been named one of America's best doctors for the last 18 consecutive years and has been featured on NPR, CNN, ABC. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on the show, Dr. Hamilton. Well, nice to be here, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Great to, yeah, so you are you're very 
impressive history. I don't know. Uh, you are a horse trainer and a neurosurgeon. So yeah, I, I sort of think of them as the left brain of my life and the right brain of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when those two came together, this is this is I guess was is the book right? Lead with mm-hmm. your heart, lessons from life with horses. How does that work? Well, you know, the thing about you know neurosurgery is it's all very precise. It's all stainless steel and computer registration of CT and MR scans and so on, and. Um, a lot of science, obviously, and then you know you come home and train horses, and it's all very emotional and intuitive and connecting um, energetically in a partnership with a horse. You know, it's uh, horses are nonverbal, so everything switches over to a completely uh, sort of right brain experience. Uh, well, let's. I want to connect the dots. Uh, so first, how did you, I mean, you started out as a surgeon, right, or as a doctor, as a physician, Harvard Medical School, Mass General, really impressive credentials. But were you also engaged with horses at the same time, or was this sort of a, a, an out, you know, it, your interest sort of grew organically? You know, I was, I was raised in a house with uh, domestic violence. My, my mom took my brother and I away eventually, and my grandfather raised me, and he was a cavalry officer. So, um, we, and he was a superb equestrian. So, my, as I grew up, I spent a great deal of time with him, and so it was kind of natural, probably part genetic and part part just you know nurture. Um, but we always did stuff around horses, and I was a riding counselor at camp and that sort of thing. And then about thirty years ago, when I started training horses, but I was you know already by that time had finished my neurosurgery training and everything. Um, and had just, you know, just kind of really worked pretty hard at it and got, um, you know, well-known for doing some stuff with horses and sort of what they call horse whispering. And, um, you know, just one thing led to another. Uh, and this is my second book on training horses. Uh, this one's really a little bit less about training horses, more about life lessons that, that horses have taught me that you then can apply to, uh, to the rest of your life. It's about 112 different uh, lessons that are each summarized in a, in a page or two. All right, let's, can we talk about some of those life lessons, the, uh, the sure. ones probably that are, yeah, the most important to you? Because um, I know you, the themes are, um, you know, leadership and ambition and humility and all of those different uh, topics, life lessons. So let's, you know, let's kind of explore some of those. Well, to start with, I mean, I think the thing that's important for your viewers to try and understand is why would why would you get life lessons from horses? And um, the reason is first you're dealing with a 1,200 pound creature who is linked to you emotionally. I mean, I can't make a 1,200 pound animal do anything. <laughs> you know, I can try. I can try to use might is right, but it, it's a very limited policy or strategy with a 1,200 pound horse. So you quickly learn, hey, the best thing I can do is form a very tight bond and partnership with this horse because then this horse wants to do things with me. Um, and so you, you kind of learn to let go of a lot of the predatory drives that you have. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, just, you know, pulling on a horse. You know, you think, oh, okay, I'll yank him this way or I'll yank him that way. Well, not really because uh, when, you, when you do... That horse can finally say, well, I don't have to listen to you. So the, you learn, stop creating lines of resistance with the horse and start creating curves of compromise. 
Um, and that's a good lesson. I mean, I use that all the time in my uh, my work uh, at the hospital when I'm working with my team is, you know, I keep saying, do, am I creating resistance or am, am I get creating a curve where the whole team can flow with me um, just like you do with horses? You know, I think that the other thing is when you run into a problem with training a horse, it's never the horse. It always comes back to some issue with you that you have to face. Uh, you had an agenda, you're working uh, too fast, you're working too hard, uh, you haven't built up the horse in enough steps, but when things break down, you have to face yourself in order to find the breakthrough. So, again, another good life lesson. As you, if when you did that first happen to you? When did you first realize that? Cause, oh, you mean, you, you know, the first time? Oh, I would say Yeah, the first time you realize it's not me. I mean, it is me. It is I. It is not the horse. I'm doing something. Oh, I, I would say, yeah. you know, it's a lesson I come back to over and over and over again. Uh, but I would say at least 25 years ago was when I finally realized, holy smokes, I'm just bumping into myself. It's not the horse. Um, when I get clear, the horse gets clear. Um, and so, you, you know, you kind of, the, the horse is this constant self-evaluation and uh, you, you know, you, you, I always think of these horses sort of like, you know, Zen Buddhist sages, you know, and they're out there yeah. and then you go and, and you pick one up and you go into the round pen and, you know, you feel like uh, they'll go, uh, so you think you're ready, grasshopper, come, <laughs> we shall see, you know, and they, they beckon yeah. you into the round pen and then they're te- they'll teach you some lesson and it's amazing. Um, you know, how often you'll have some kind of question in your life and then you'll go into the round pen and all of a sudden you'll go, oh, man, that's what's going on, you know? Uh, what about, now, you, you sort of touched on it, but like translating that into your position as a physician, especially, hmm. I guess, as a surgeon, because I always think of surgeons, and this is a stereotype, is, you know, it's sort of, this is the way we're going to do it, this is the way I'm going to do it, and not somebody who really necessarily is able to communicate with their patients. Right. You want them to be right. good surgeons, but not necessarily good communicators. So mm-hmm. this really must, this relationship with a horse or horses has to really impact you as, as, as a physician, but, and you, you sort of implied that, but um, can you give us examples? Sure. Um, first yeah. off, you're right. I mean, the old model is always you're the captain of the ship, you know, and you kind of just stand there like Captain Bly ordering everybody around. Um, but that doesn't really work. Um, uh, what, what works is having a team where you've built a lot of consensus and a lot of support for each other. And those teams are not only happy teams, but they're very effective teams when you get into tight spots or very difficult surgery where, you know, obviously everybody's very tense and anxious. Um, Another example is that um, you control horses with your breath. You know, by, by letting your body soften and relax, the horse will soften and relax and come to a stop. So very often... I'll, um, you know, if I go to a tense situation up in the ICU or a code or something like that, I make a point of, you know, yes, I hurry there, but I don't want to run into the room and go, okay, okay, tell me, tell me, tell me what's going on. You know, I come into the room very quiet and I go, all right, so fill me in. Where are we? You know, and I keep my voice quiet and low and I want everybody to understand, hey, we're in total control here. We are professionals. We know what we're doing and we're going to do everything that we can to save this patient, but the last thing we're going to do is panic because that's not going to help anybody. Um, so you're very often using exactly the same, 
the same ideas. Um, and little things like, you know, that you, you know, when I, I watched a video of myself one time and I, you know, I was looking at the films on the, on the board, you know, and I had the, the patient behind me and I was talking to the films. Uh, you know, the patient was literally having to listen over my shoulder. And I go, you know, look at the message that I'm sending to the patient physically, you know, which is the films are more important than you are. And if you want to hear what I'm saying to the films, you have to listen over my shoulder. So then I realized, you know, hey, if this was a horse, I'd be sending them the signal by standing next to them. So I said, well, why don't I do the same thing? That way I'm sending a physical signal with the patient. We're looking at your films together. This is our mutual problem that you and I are are going to face and confront together um, rather than you're behind me and I'm leading the way. Um, so it's all those little things that matter to a horse. Every tiny little thing you do makes a difference to a horse. That's, uh, you know, that's an interesting concept. I always remember uh, one of my sons had, uh, actually was at Mass General, a uh, surgery on mm. his eye, and they mm. had one of the residents come in and ask questions. Uh, you know, before uh, he actually had the surgery. And, they, and I call him, he was a young man, and he's sitting there at his desk with his back towards my son, asking him questions, intimate questions yeah. also in front of me. I shouldn't have been in the room because he was a teenager, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex. So right. I thought, he, he's never going to get the right answer for two reasons. He's not even looking at him. And for the second reason, I'm in the room. So all of those things really do matter. And... um that's just another example of it. You know, he needed to turn around, talk to his patient, and ask me to excuse myself from the room. So, uh, absolutely, it's so true. yeah. And you know, with the EMR, with the electronic medical record now, the doctors are spending tons of time typing at the the computer screen and not listening or looking at the patient. And in fact, on rounds, we I've asked the residents to get rid of their iPads because they're all looking at their iPads. We're, we're, they're not talking to the patient. So I just said, look, well, when we go on rounds, there's no iPads because I really want the, uh, you know, again, when you, you know, if you think back to your, what you were talking about, your son's example, which I think is a great one, um, you know, it, there's, there's no integrity with the patient because your body language is saying, look, I'm not that interested in you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. And, and then you sort of think like, wait a minute, I'm going to have surgery and put my life in your hands? Um, And, you know, the amazing thing is that most patients spend under seven minutes getting consented for surgery. They spend more than 40 minutes before they decide to take a car out for a test drive. (laughs) So it gives you some idea of how how screwed up things are. Um, You know, another thing we find looking at videotapes is the average patient gets interrupted in 29 and a half seconds as soon as they start talking to their doctor. So the doctor's not even giving them the time to listen to their story. And again, that's one thing that patients will, um, will uh, you know, you, you learn is that um, don't interrupt the patient. You know, horses teach you, be patient. Let things come of their own and don't have an agenda. So when somebody says, well, you know, I had this headache, how long? Let them tell you. They will tell you that, um, you know, they'll tell you what's wrong with them, but you have to let them tell your, your story. What's the response when you're, talk, when you're teaching your residents and your medical students? And uh, is it an aha experience for them? Or are they, you know, Yeah, they I think to, for many yeah. of them it is. And I think when they start to see how much the patient will actually reveal. But the other thing is, 
just like a horse, that patient relaxes into telling you their story because they realize that you're actually listening. You're actively listening. I always think back to my kids when they were teenagers and you know, and they're they're trying to tell you what you know what they think is right, or what they want to do, or what they should be doing with their peers. And of course, as the parent, you're going, no, I'm not going to tell you. You know, I'll tell you what's right. I know better. Blah right. blah blah. And you're all you're doing is you're waiting for that your kid to take a breath, so you can tell them what you think. And you know, with with a horse, when you have an agenda like that, it destroys the relationship with the horse. The horse will not be able to perform at his maximum. If he thinks that you have an agenda, if you say like, you know, hey, I want to um, I want to get this done in 20 minutes, the horse immediately knows whether or not you have, a, a, you know, you have an agenda. And when you do, you're basically being a predator. You're saying, hey, I, I want to get something out of you. And then the horse goes, wait a minute, you're not you're not in this just for the training. You're, you're after something else, aren't you? And then the horse changes their whole attitude. That's, you know, that's, it's so fascinating. I, I guess I, I just had really never thought about it that way in terms of I have a friend who's a avid uh, horse person and, and um, she actually we've never had this discussion, you know, so I find that very, obviously she must know this, um, but um, you talk about one of the issues too that I thought was ambition. What about ambition? How does that fit into it? Like, how does the horse train you in terms of a, of ambition? Or what does that mean? A- ambition is is very dangerous around a horse because, um, in fact, the only times I've gotten really hurt by a horse is when I wanted to try and make the horse. I wanted to prove I could make the horse do something. You know, either for. Uh, uh, you know, a, a clinic and there are people, you know, spectators in the in the stands, you know, and I want to just show how good we are and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, what, what happens is you lose the partnership with the horse. And so I always, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, and these are, you know, just about 112 lessons, but one of them is agendas kill relationships. Because what happens is the, the, the objective, what you're trying to get becomes more important than Am I compromising my integrity with the, in the relationship? And for a horse, I mean, a horse can change their body language. Um, give you some idea of how subtle it is. You can do an exercise where people just walk around on a horse, okay? And as they're walking around the ring, you ask them questions. And you say you can lie on, about, on them and tell the truth. doesn't matter. And what you try and do is by the way the horse changes their body, to figure out whether the person was lying or telling you the truth. And people go, is that, is that possible? And you go, absolutely. You can look at the change in the horse because our bodies change when we lie. Um, same thing going down a trail with the horse. I can look to the left and look at a mule deer. And then I can go 500 yards and look to the left and go because there's a trail and that's where I want to go. And somehow the horse can tell the difference when I look to the left and I'm just looking versus I look to the left and I want to go there. Um, I don't know how they do it. I just know that it happens, and I can I can trust it. So I think you know, in in, in a lot of ways, the the subtlety horses are so physically subtle that they immediately catch on to that you're not there for them anymore. And it's, how do you repair the relationship? Because Doctor, you said uh, I said how do you repair the relationship? You said, for instance, agendas kill relationships. Yeah, with with with, their, with your horse. So then how do you repair that? What do you do? It's, 
So, so this goes back to my point. The first thing you have to do is you have to recognize, uh-oh, I'm, being, I'm after something. And now the horse understands that. And so you have to come back and say, look, is it really important that you demonstrate that that horse can get over a six-foot jump that day? No. Do you care if they do it in two weeks or a year? No, because you have a lifetime with that horse. So you, you suddenly let go. And when you let go, the horse goes, ah, now you're back with me. And horses are incredibly forgiving by their, by their nature. Um, you know, I, I, I remember a horse that was terribly mistreated. The, the Humane Society asked me if I could work with them, and this horse had been just brutalized. In fact, when the Humane Society got there, somebody had made a bridle out of barbed wire for him. And, you know, he was just all cut up and bleeding everywhere, and I thought, this horse is never going to recover. And um, about two years later, this little girl came up with at the stable, um, I bought my ranch, and she had some carrots, and she says, I want to feed them to Ace. And I go, who's Ace? You know, because this horse's name was Diablo. That's how he had come. His name was Diablo. Uh, and uh, so I said, who's Ace? And she goes, well, that horse over there, he's the Ace of Hearts. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And, you know, this horse had just uh, not judged us by everything that other human beings had done to him. This horse really had this wonderful sense of forgiveness and said, I'm not going to be biased by what other people have done to me. I will judge you on your own merits. And um, so there was this wonderful little girl who had this wonderful relationship with what was supposed to be a terrible, terrible killer horse, but he wasn't at all. He wasn't at all. He had just been terribly mistreated, and he didn't have any human beings he could trust. Resiliency is the word that comes up. They talk about those of us who survive and do it well. There's that whole that we're resilient, and I guess that's obviously this horse. Um, oh yeah, and yeah, and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Yeah. What other, you know, we don't have a lot of time left. What other, what other examples do we want to give? Because you've given some really interesting things for us well, to think let's, about. But, let's talk about the yeah. election for a moment. All right. Let's talk, <laughs> so what let's kind of lessons right can a horse teach you about, about a presidential All right. Well, election. you waited until the last five minutes. Okay, let's go. <laughs> right. So one of the things that horses have is a beautiful model of, of leadership. And they're, they're the, the, the alpha mayor, um, uh, which may tell something about the election. The alpha mayor is put in charge, and her job is to, number one, assess the danger for the rest of the risk of, of the herd. And number two, she has to put herself at risk for the benefit of the herd. So if there's a danger, if there's something that's precarious, if there's a possible predator, the lead mayor will go first, asking the rest of the herd to hang back until she's assessed the danger. When she looks for water or forage, she just doesn't look for herself she makes sure that there's going to be enough for the whole herd to stay together in that spot and that it's a safe spot. And then last but not least, she earns that leadership every day. She, she does not get to keep it if she can't demonstrate to the, to the herd that she has. She can command, she can control, she can communicate, and she has compassion. You know what I call the four C's of leadership. And, um, and so, you know, horses give us a wonderful model of take care of the herd. That's what leaders do. They don't just look out for themselves. Now, we're connecting this to the election? Well, I think, you know, we have to say, okay, 
I would love to see somebody who could demonstrate some of those characteristics and make me truly believe, hey, you've got my interest and the interest of the herd before your own, and you're looking out for the common good, and uh, you're not happy until, unless you have proven to the herd that you're giving them the resources they need to thrive. Um, so, you know, I think in a lot of ways, these models for leadership that we get from horses uh, translate into, uh, into business all the time which is when I'm working with my team in the lab or in the operating room, I have to prove that I am taking care of everybody. And then I'm appreciating everybody and everybody's contribution. Um, and I'm looking out for what, do they have the resources, do they have the support they need to get the job done. So how would we relate that to each one of the candidates for the presidency? Well, I would say first off, um, who has earned the right to be leader? That, that's something each one of us has to decide for ourselves. But have they earned the right to be leader, and have they demonstrated the right to be the leader every single day? Uh, number two, are they looking out for the herd? Have they, been, have they made it clear that they are going to find the resources to keep the herd sound and healthy and able to accomplish its goals? And um, you have to decide, you know, I can't tell you who to vote for, but I can tell you, <laughs> you want to look at those things and say, who has command, control, communication, and compassion? Uh, because those in the horse world, that is what will get you uh, the respect of the herd. So temperament is very important. We talk, you know, that's one of the issues that's obviously come up in this election. So temperament would yeah. be key. Temperament is key. And, uh, and for example, when, when, a, when a horse, let's say a, a stallion, misbehaves, what happens is, uh, what they do is they say, you can't be part of the herd. And they go, what? And he goes, you've got to stay away. And then they, they're frantic. And they go, no, I, I have to be part of a herd if I want to be protected. And then they go, well, when you can behave yourself, you can be part of the herd. Okay, so, you know, when you know how to behave, we'll allow you back in. But right now your behavior is disruptive, and the way we handle that is we chase you out. And for horses, being alone is the, one of the most terrifying things if they're not with a herd. Uh, so, you know, again, it's not violent. Um, the interesting thing to me is that horses are rarely violent with each other. They can be, don't get me wrong. But 95% of the conflicts between horses are resolved peacefully. And 95% of the conflicts between humans and horses are resolved with physical violence. Uh, Great with the example. horse being the victim. I could go on and on. This is, I mean, we have to say goodbye because we have like 30 seconds left. So, I, but, but, and so before we do, Doctor, I just want to mention your book again because people can continue with this conversation. Reading your book, lead with the, your, um, the Dr. Alan Hamilton, M.D., Lead with Your Heart, Lessons from a Life with Horses. You can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, and just is there a, a website that we can go oh, to? Oh, sure, alanhamilton.com, yeah. and it's two A's, two L's. Easy great. to find. Thanks. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was okay. great. Thank you, Catherine. Yep. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at 
www.katherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.